Chapter number forty one of The Law and the Lady. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wiebke Müller. The Law and the Lady by Wilkie Collins. Chapter forty one. Mr. Playmore in a New Character. By that night's post, although I was far from being fit to make the exertion, I wrote to Mr. Playmore to tell him what had taken place and to beg for his earliest assistance and advice. The notes in Benjamin's book were partly written in shorthand, and were, on that account, of no use to me in their existing condition. At my request he made two fair copies. One of the copies I enclosed in my letter to Mr. Playmore. The other I laid by me on my bedside table when I went to rest. Over and over again, through the long hours of the wakeful night, I read and re-read the last words which had dropped from Miserrimus Dexter's lips. Was it possible to interpret them to any useful purpose? At the very outset they seemed to set interpretation at defiance. After trying vainly to solve the hopeless problem, I did at last what I might as well have done at first. I threw down the paper in despair. Where were my bright visions of discovery and success now, scattered to the winds? Was there the faintest chance of the striking man's return to reason? I remember too well what I had seen to hope for it. The closing lines of the medical report which I had read in Mr. Playmore's office recurred to my memory in the stillness of the night. When the catastrophe has happened, his friends can entertain no hope of his cure. The balance once lost will be lost for life." The confirmation of that terrible sentence was not long in reaching me. On the next morning the gardener brought a note containing the information which the doctor had promised to give me on the previous day. Miserrimus Dexter and Ariel were still where Benjamin and I had left them together, in the long room. They were watched by skilled attendants, waiting the decision of Dexter's nearest relative, a younger brother who lived in the country and who had been communicated with by telegraph. It had been found impossible to part the faithful Ariel from her master without using the bodily restraints adopted in cases of raging insanity. The doctor and the gardener, both unusually strong men, had failed to hold the poor creature when they first attempted to remove her on entering the room. Directly they permitted her to return to her master, the frenzy vanished. She was perfectly quiet and contented so long as they let her sit at his feet and look at him. Sad as this was, the report of Miserrimus Dexter's condition was more melancholy still. "'My patient is in a state of absolute imbecility.' Those were the words in the doctor's letter, and the gardener's simple narrative confirmed them as the truest words that could have been used. He was utterly unconscious of poor Ariel's devotion to him. He did not even appear to know that she was present in the room. For hours together he remained in a state of utter lethargy in his chair. He showed an animal interest in his meals, and a greedy animal enjoyment of eating and drinking as much as he could get, and that was all. This morning, the honest gardener said to me at parting, we thought he seemed to wake up a bit. Looked about him, you know, and made queer signs with his hands. I couldn't make out what he meant, no more could the doctor. She knew, poor thing, she did. Went and got him his harp, and put his hand up to it. Lord bless you, no use. He couldn't play no more than I can. Twanged at it anyhow, and grinned and gabbled to himself. No, he'll never come right again. Any person can see that without the doctor to help him. Enjoys his meals, as I told you, and that's all. It would be the best thing that could happen if it would please God to take him. 
There is no more to be said. I wish you good morning, ma'am. He went away with the tears in his eyes, and he left me, I own it, with the tears in mine. An hour later there came some news which revived me. I received a telegram from Mr. Playmore, expressed in these welcome words. Obliged to go to London by tonight's mail train. Expect me to breakfast tomorrow morning. The appearance of the lawyer at our breakfast-table duly followed the appearance of his telegram. His first words cheered me up. To my infinite surprise and relief, he was far from sharing the despondent view which I took of my position. "'I don't deny,' he said, "'that there are some serious obstacles in your way, but I should never have called here before attending to my professional business in London if Mr. Benjamin's notes had not produced a very strong impression on my mind. For the first time, as I think, you really have a prospect of success. For the first time, I feel justified in offering, under certain restrictions, to help you.' That miserable wretch in the collapse of his intelligence has done what he would never have done in the possession of his sense and his cunning. He has let us see the first precious glimmerings of the light of truth. "'Are you sure it is the truth?' I asked. "'In two important particulars,' he answered, "'I know it to be the truth. Your idea about him is the right one. His memory, as you suppose, was the least injured of his faculties, and was the last to give way under the strain of trying to tell that story. I believe his memory to have been speaking to you, unconsciously to himself, in all that he said from the moment when the first reference to the letter escaped him to the end. But what does the reference to the letter mean? I asked. For my part I am entirely in the dark about it. So am I, he answered frankly. The chief one amongst the obstacles which I mentioned just now is the obstacle presented by that same letter. The late Mrs. Eustace must have been connected with it in some way, or Dexter would never have spoken of it as a dagger in his heart. Dexter would never have coupled her name with the words which describe the tearing up of the letter and the throwing of it away. I can arrive with some certainty at this result, and I can get no further. I have no more idea than you have of who wrote the letter, or of what was written in it. If we are ever to make that discovery, probably the most important discovery of all, we must dispatch our first inquiries a distance of three thousand miles. In plain English, my dear lady, we must send to America. This, naturally enough, took me completely by surprise. I waited eagerly to hear why we were to send to America. It rests with you, he proceeded, when you hear what I have to tell you, to say whether you will go to the expense of sending a man to New York or not. I can find the right man for the purpose, and I estimate the expense, including a telegram— Never mind the expense, I interposed, losing all patience with the eminently Scotch view of the case, which put my purse in the first place of importance. I don't care for the expense. I want to know what you have discovered. He smiled. She doesn't care for the expense, he said to himself pleasantly. How like a woman! I might have retorted, he thinks of the expense before he thinks of anything else. How like a Scotchman! As it was, I was too anxious to be witty. I only drummed impatiently with my fingers on the table and said, Tell me, tell me! He took out the fair copy from Benjamin's notebook, which I had sent to him, and showed me these among Dexter's closing words. What about the letter? Burn it now. No fire in the grate, no matches in the box. House topsy-turvy, servants all gone. Do you really understand what those words mean? I asked. I look back into my own experience, he answered, and I understand perfectly what the words mean. 
and can you make me understand them too easily in those incomprehensible sentences dexter's memory has correctly recalled certain facts i have only to tell you the facts and you will be as wise as i am at the time of the trial your husband surprised and distressed me by insisting on the instant dismissal of all the household servants at gleninch i was instructed to pay them a quarter's wages in advance to give them the excellent written characters which their good conduct thoroughly deserved and to see the house clear of them at an hour's notice eustace's motive for this summary proceeding was much the same motive which animated his conduct toward you if i am ever to return to gleninch he said i cannot face my honest servants after the infamy of having stood my trial for murder there was his reason nothing that i could say to him poor fellow shook his resolution i dismissed the servants accordingly at an hour's notice they quitted the house leaving their work for the day all undone the only persons placed in charge of gleninch were persons who lived on the outskirts of the park that is to say the lodge-keeper and his wife and daughter on the last day of the trial i instructed the daughter to do her best to make the rooms tidy she was a good girl enough but she had no experience as a housemaid it would never enter her head to lay the bedroom fires ready for lighting or to replenish the empty match-boxes those chance words that dropped from dexter would no doubt exactly describe the state of his room when he returned to gleninch with the prisoner and his mother from edinburgh that he tore up the mysterious letter in his bedroom and finding no means immediately at hand for burning it that he threw the fragment into the empty grate or into the waste-paper basket seems to be the most reasonable conclusion that we can draw from what we know in any case he would not have much time to think about it everything was done in a hurry on that day eustace and his mother accompanied by dexter left for england the same evening by the night-train i myself locked up the house and gave the keys to the lodge-keeper it was understood that he was to look after the preservation of the reception-rooms on the ground floor and that his wife and daughter were to perform the same service between them in the rooms upstairs on receiving your letter i drove at once to gleninch to question the old woman on the subject of the bedrooms and of dexter's room especially she remembered the time when the house was shut up by associating it with the time when she was confined to her bed by an attack of sciatica she had not crossed the lodge door she was sure for at least a week if not longer after gleninch had been left in charge of her husband and herself whatever was done in the way of keeping the bedrooms aired and tidy during her illness was done by her daughter she and she only must have disposed of any letter which might have been lying about in dexter's room not a vestige of torn paper as i can myself certify is to be discovered in any part of the room now where did the girl find the fragments of the letter and what did she do with them those are the questions if you approve of it which we must send three thousand miles away to ask for this sufficient reason that the lodge-keeper's daughter was married more than a year since and that she is settled with her husband in business at new york it rests with you to decide what is to be done don't let me mislead you with false hopes don't let me tempt you to throw away your money even if this woman does remember what she did with the torn paper the chances at this distance of time are enormously against our ever recovering a single morsel of it be in no haste to decide i have my work to do in the city i can give you the whole day to think it over send the men to new york by the next steamer i said there is my decision mr playmore without keeping you waiting for it he shook his head in grave disapproval of my impetuosity in my former interview with him we had never once touched on the question of money 
i was now for the first time to make acquaintance with mr playmore on the purely scotch side of his character why you don't even know what it will cost you he exclaimed taking out his pocket-book with the air of a man who was equally startled and scandalized wait till i tot it up he said in english and american money i can't wait i want to make more discoveries he took no notice of my interruption he went on impenetrably with his calculations the man will go second class and will take a return ticket very well his ticket includes his food and being thank god a teetotaler he won't waste your money in buying liquor on board arrived at new york he will go to a cheap german house where he will as i am credibly informed be boarded and lodged at the rate by this time my patience being completely worn out i had taken my cheque-book from the table-drawer had signed my name and had handed the blank cheque across the table to my legal adviser fill it in with whatever the man wants i said and for heaven's sake let's get back to dexter mr playmore fell back in his chair and lifted his hands and eyes to the ceiling i was not in the least impressed by that solemn appeal to the unseen powers of arithmetic and money i insisted positively on being fed with more information listen to this i went on reading from benjamin's notes what did dexter mean when he said number nine caldershaws ask for dandy you shan't have the diary a secret in your ear the diary will hang him how came dexter to know what was in my husband's diary and what does he mean by number nine caldershaws and the rest of it facts again facts again mr playmore answered muddled up together as you may say but positive facts for all that caldershaws you must know is one of the most disreputable districts in edinburgh one of my clerks whom i am in the habit of employing confidentially volunteered to inquire for dandy at number nine it was a ticklish business in every way and my man wisely took a person with him who was known in the neighbourhood number nine turned out to be ostensibly a shop for the sale of rags and old iron and dandy was suspected of trading now and then additionally as a receiver of stolen goods thanks to the influence of his companion backed by a bank-note which can be repaid by the way out of the fund for the american expenses my clerk succeeded in making the fellow speak not to trouble you with needless details the result in substance was this a fortnight or more before the date of mrs eustace's death dandy made two keys from wax models supplied to him by a new customer the mystery observed in the matter by the agent who managed it excited dandy's distrust he had the man privately watched before he delivered the keys and he ended in discovering that his customer was miserrimus dexter wait a little i have not done yet add to this information dexter's incomprehensible knowledge of the contents of your husband's diary and the product is that the wax models sent to the old iron shop in caldershaws were models taken by theft from the key of the diary and the key of the table drawer in which it was kept i have my own idea of the revelations that are still to come if this matter is properly followed up never mind going into that at present dexter i tell you again is answerable for the late mrs eustace's death how he is answerable i believe you are in a fair way of finding out and more than that i say now what i could not venture to say before it is a duty toward justice as well as a duty toward your husband to bring the truth to light as for the difficulties to be encountered i don't think they need daunt you 
the greatest difficulties give way in the end when they are attacked by the united alliance of patient resolution and economy with a strong emphasis on the last words my worthy adviser mindful of the flight of time and the claims of business rose to take his leave one word more i said as he held out his hand can you manage to see miss erymus dexter before you go back to edinburgh from what the gardener told me his brother must be with him by this time it would be a relief to me to hear the latest news of him and to hear it from you it is part of my business in london to see him said mr playmore but mind i have no hope of his recovery i only wish to satisfy myself that his brother is able and willing to take care of him so far as we are concerned mrs eustace this unhappy man has said his last words he opened the door stopped considered and came back to me with regard to that matter of sending the agent to america he resumed i propose to have the honour of submitting to you a brief abstract oh mr playmore a brief abstract in writing mrs eustace of the estimated expenses of the whole proceeding you will be good enough maturely to consider the same making any remarks on it tending to economy which may suggest themselves to your mind at the time and you will further oblige me if you approve of the abstract by yourself filling in the blank space on your cheque with the needful amount in words and figures no madam i really cannot justify it to my conscience to carry about my person any such a loose and reckless document as a blank cheque there is a total disregard for the first claims of prudence and economy implied in this small slip of paper which is nothing less than a flat contradiction of the principles that have governed my whole life i can't submit to flat contradiction good morning mrs eustace good morning he laid my cheque on the table with a low bow and left me among the curious developments of human stupidity which occasionally present themselves to view surely the least excusable is the stupidity which to this day persists in wondering why the scotch succeeds so well in life End of chapter forty one